Welcome to the Gravidile Podcast. Now, I know that this format is going to seem a little different than what we usually do each week. On this episode, I sat down and spoke with Sefi. He's one of the legends over on Twitter. And if you've been involved with the Terra Lunatic or just crypto Twitter community in general, he's incredibly active in spaces over there and always is providing his thoughts and opinions on the broader trends of the world on Twitter. This week, I was able to get him to sit down with me and just chat about what he's up to in the space. Uh, as we went to do this call, we everything went great. It was a really fantastic conversation, and I did not realize that my audio interface was glitching out and my microphone was not recorded. So I have to send a quick apology to Sefi for uh, losing the natural back and forth of that conversation. I'm going to be bouncing in and out of these portions where Sefi speaks because we still got his voice recorded here. So with that, I hope you enjoy the interview. So in the first part of this conversation, Sefi and I speak about the meme effect of cryptocurrencies and really what drives their adoption. Uh, We spoke a little bit about the original Terra design as well and how that implements in, but we get into that a little bit later on. But basically, he's been seeing a, a broad trend right now where the people who are adopting the meme effect, they almost are the ones who are perpetuating this stuff down the line. So those who are the active community members right now who are actually still here during the bear market, um, even if they were perhaps top buyers, uh, they are going to be the ones, if they exist in these certain networks, that will actually be driving later network growth. Uh, I think Sefi has a very interesting viewpoint on this theory, and I will now turn it over to what he has to say on the subject. If, if the price of something doesn't push really high, then future expectations are going to be managed lower. Uh, and uh, like, I don't know, there's, there's almost no way around it. It's like, it's what I call the price meme effect. The price is itself something that attracts attention and then creates a feedback loop for momentum. And um, it's like the it's like the purest form of like feedback loop or like, um, I don't know, like direct effect on people's psychology. Right. Yeah, it's a it's an effect like the the price is a reflection on people's interest, the amounts of attention you're able to gin up. But it's also kind of the thing that drives lots of new users into an ecosystem, because without it, like you don't get that feedback loop and you don't get a bunch of users. So yeah, it's true sort of like tomorrow's today's top buyers or tomorrow's, you know, bag holders, but also are the, are like next season's advocates because they have skin in the game. And now those are the people who are going to go out and talk about a project because they want their number to go up. Right. Like it's almost like this, there's, there's no way around it almost like um, where, where this doesn't happen. So. But yeah, the, but but if you ask the general public, right, even people with Bitcoin and their hashtags or whatever, like you really get deep into what it is. And I think people's knowledge base is a lot smaller than uh, like it, it's a lot smaller and, and a lot, lot more people are interested necessarily um, versus in the technicals, right, or, or the tech the technical details not not the technicals but the technical details of the so the, the so-called in it for the tech people are there the ideologues are there and they probably represent the higher low right on a price or a lower low if that if that's what it is but uh but the higher highs usually are just sentiment and fomo and all of that and i think that's just all normal it's just it's fine for it to happen but yeah anyway 
So without kind of rehashing too much, like what was interesting about uh, Tara, it was this idea of the uncensorable, um, ultimately the uncensorable stable coins you could build DeFi primitives on top of. We've seen what's happened to Tornado Cash. We've seen what's happened to a lot of other bridged stablecoin networks, like um, I think Lido Finance was hacked at some point. And then, um, I'm sorry, uh, Wormhole, I, I, not, not Lido, L uh, Wormhole was uh, hacked and there's a bunch of other bridge hacks and things of that nature. So um, a, a mixture of sort of like bridge hacks and stablecoin censorship issues like were some of the things that uh, like the Terra UST mechanism was designed to sort of like work on. Um, I think just briefly, the reason it failed was a mixture of a lack of decentralized remittance. The only place you could remit, um, you know, UST like appropriately for Luna was the primary chain. Um, and outside um, the chain, like on Binance and such, you could basically short both UST and Luna and create weird... Um, uh, per, like perverse uh, uh, outcomes can happen when, when that happens. And there is an insufficient amount of like arbitrage volume to overwhelm uh, those kinds of problems. So that's ultimately what broke the system besides some capital control issues on Anchor Protocol um, that uh, like, you know, without getting too deep into details, there, there were things that could be done better if this type of thing was done again. Um, but at the same time, like, um, uh, it's not really clear that there is like a, a totally uh, foolproof way to accomplish a pegged mechanism to an outside asset, whether it's stocks like Mirror Protocol or like synthetics on Ethereum or whether it's um, like any of these types of systems that try to peg a crypto to some outside value, whether it's a stable coin, a stock, the weather or anything. Like there are lots of sort of technical problems and hurdles. And the bigger those systems get, the harder they are to maintain stability on. So the I think the future, first off, for the so-called decentralized uh, stable coins or algorithmic stable coins or even collateral-backed ones, the future of that's going to be some sort of highly collateralized version of such a thing. But I think the scale that those things can reach is limited because um, the number of people who are willing to um, provide collateral is generally going to be less than the number of total number of people who want to use a stable coin. So it's like you're, there's always going to be that discrepancy. So without an algorithmic system, scalability is not possible. And then uh, also like USDC and Tether and things like that, those have flaws too. And censorship is the most obvious one. But ultimately, how do those companies make a profit, right? They have to lend out their money to somewhere and create some kind of commercial paper or something. Otherwise, why on earth would you, like, let's say you had a billion dollars, would you use that billion dollars to create USDC with it? Or would you go and invest it somewhere else and hopefully beat the market or whatever? Um, so the, the problem is like, it's not really clear what the business model for those things are. So ultimately leads it to a situation where CBDCs or central bank digital currencies ultimately have the the lowest overhead to run a system like that which means that we're stuck with that shit right like and nobody wants it but like we haven't come up with an alternative so my view is like the solution might be that you if cosmos for example as an ecosystem of chains if it gets big enough then what you could treat cosmos as on the whole meaning all the chains like juno terra um you know like cosmos hub Kajira, whatever, right? This 
this constellation of 50 plus chains, and that might become 100 plus at some point. You treat the constellation of them as a country, and as a country, you issue a stable that is stable within the country, and you don't guarantee that it is stable outside of the cosmos, similar to how, like, I don't know, Argentina or a, you know, some other country would 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 create a currency and you could you could tie things to you know bitcoin or whatever and other methods to try to like uh, stabilize uh collateralization essentially to to make it more feasible for people but yeah there's a lot of different ideas going around and a lot of that's happening you know as we speak on uh, like so so no people have not given up on the idea of creating some sort of collateralized staples yeah, it's it's continually like the, the the desire for them is so high. The product market fit is so high that their people keep on experimenting with them. They should do, obviously users should do so at their own like caution, <laughs> like obviously. But uh, th it's not that it's not being worked on. There, there's also an element of like if you're going to be censored by a bank or anybody else, um, the question is who has the keys to that kingdom, right? That's the other problem. At least on the one hand, if it's a government issued thing, technically, yes, it could lead to some kind of totalitarian dystopia or whatever. But at the same time, it also puts you in a position where, you know, you can sue a government or you can sue um, some sort of entity um, or have some sort of recourse in theory, assuming you still live in a free country. Um, on the other hand, when corporations uh, start to censor you, um, I, I don't know that the problem is made any less complex than if a government does it. I don't know. Like either group could become fairly, um, I don't know, like totalitarian, totalitarian in terms of exerting their value system upon you. Um, and like the tornado cash example was a good one, uh, a good situation to like study in the sense that like there's a lot of people who are using tornado cash for perfectly legitimate privacy and who had their funds censored or, or stuck, right? Sefi brought up the idea that in order to create a truly decentralized stable currency, you need to have it ingrained within the protocol itself. And so you take a, you take a look at something like Terra, and you saw with Terra how we had the UST and Luna um, relationship. Now, Sefi doesn't quite know if uh, the algorithmic future is possible, as you hear him say. Uh, he also thinks the over-collateralized model might, may or may not work. I mean, we don't, it's not really scalable. There's a lot of critiques towards it, and we really don't know how that might play out. But he does think there's an interesting possibility where you can create a native network token. And basically, this is almost as if it's like its own currency of the network, right? So in the United States, you have the US dollar, you have the British pound in the UK, or you have the peso in, in Argentina. Like if it was baked into the, um, it, it gives the base feature of the Cosmos SDK, and a lot of chains could choose to implement that module, then what could happen is, is that this stable coin could then be, you could get remittance one-to-one, -one, let's say for a dollar or some other monetary figure, you could do so um, anywhere within the cosmos because it's native to all the chains or some major fraction of them, not just um, like not just one chain like the UST Terra situation. Does that make sense? So you could, you could have using inter-blockchain communication and inter-blockchain accounts or um, I'm sorry, 
uh, intrachain accounts, ICA, which is another feature of Cosmos. Like you could create this fungible token and it's guaranteed by the existence of the Cosmos, if that makes sense, right? So you wouldn't necessarily remit it for like a physical dollar. You just remit it for, I don't know, let's say some kind of a, like, let's say the atom token or something else. So the, the, yeah, it, but in order for that to be useful, the primary token of the, of the cosmos, let's say Adam, and you're probably aware there's an Adam 2.0 proposal going around to sort of build more value for that. Um, that would have to be A, desirable, and B, it would have to be ubiquitous. Like we're talking about like, I'm envisioning you'd need to have a market cap of like the collateral token of the cosmos be north of, we're talking about Bitcoin level size, right? We're, this is not like even Bitcoin, look how volatile it is at its current size, right? Like if you look at gold's market cap of whatever it is, $10 trillion or whatever, I think that, you know, the top of gold price lately was like 1950 or something. And it dropped all the way down to like, I don't know what it is today, but maybe 1600, 1650, something like that. That's pretty volatile considering how long gold's been around and how big its market cap is. So, and so it, it, gold's not even a stable coin, much less, um, you know, many other currencies and whatnot. So, uh, so that's one thing. And the other question is like, so, you know, do we have to live in a post stable world? Maybe, maybe like businesses and human beings just should not like assume stability. Like Argentinians don't like, they, they don't know what they're paying for on a daily basis. Right. So maybe that's like a false uh, concept and maybe that leads to um, more problems than it's worth, right? Like if the natural market were to decide these things as opposed to sort of like an artificial stability that is um, like, well, the dollar is largely stable because of size more than anything, right? Um, yeah, you know, is it possible for a country's like a, a blockchain system to get that big? I think the long-term possibility is that it is, but then of course, then you wouldn't actually need a stable coin like let's say Adam or Bitcoin or whatever would be stable at certain size. And, um, you know, it, it, but that's who knows how far away that's not going to help you and me right now. Right. Like <laughs> that was sort of like the magic and the vision of Terra UST. Like the reason why people really, really, really wanted it to work, even though it didn't um, was because it was, it was going to fill that need. Right. Um, and I, and I think that's why I wanted it to work, even though it didn't, um, and that's just how it goes, right? But anyway, yeah, the, um, so a lot of things coming to Cosmos in particular look very, very interesting. Um, it's like, but the, the system has gotten large enough, it's hard to get all parties to agree on particular protocols and governance and all that. And, and that's a big thing, I think, the next couple of years. Um, it, like the last couple of years, it's been discovered that governance is really, really hard. Um, I'm, I'm sure as a, as Gravidal probably has noticed, or any DAO for that matter, um, like it's easy to disagree about things. <laughs> like it's, and the bigger you get and the more people there are, the easier it is to disagree that like you won't find a, a, um, a definitive common ground. And so I think uh, going forward, um, blockchains need to behave a bit more like countries. They need to have a constitution. They need to have like a set of core values that they believe in um, that, you know, if you look at how the United States Constitution works, as an example, you have laws that can be produced, right, by Congress, but um, uh, but you are not going to um, 
was going to say, uh, you're not going to have a lot maintained if the Supreme Court strikes it down and claims that it's unconstitutional, right? We don't have this concept that's really cleanly built into um, blockchain governance where a person could create a governance proposal that even though it's technically executable, should it be allowable within the confines of some value system? And I think the long run is that many people who are in crypto, like, you know, whether you're a Bitcoin ideologue or whatever, whatever your thing is, like, like Bitcoin's not a privacy ideology, it's more of a um, immutability, um, like in censorship resistance and all the other things that Bitcoin has, right? Um, it has specific trade-offs that it made to be what it is. And um, similarly, I think uh, we need like a constitution or a set of values for any major chain. Um, and people can rely upon that forever, right? Like, for example, um, I think like our constitution has a freedom of speech. It has things like, okay, thou shalt not have slaves, um, you know, things of that nature, right? Um, excuse me, I'm kind of getting a call in the background. I think it's might uh, make some noise here. Um, so uh, similarly, like I think uh, a blockchain has to have certain things, certain laws that you're not going to break is kind of, uh, kind of the way I think about it. And the idea with these things is that you're always able to transfer what this value is into the currency that you desire. So you always know you can always redeem these currencies, even if you don't agree with them, whether you think they're fiat or not garbage or whatever. Um, you are always able to have that value there. Like you always know that one peso is going to be one peso or one dollar is going to be one dollar. Uh, and in order to have a secure system, he thinks that cryptocurrencies need to adopt almost a nation state model of issuing a, their own currency, which I, I, I thought was interesting. And perhaps we could see uh, coming to networks in the near future. As we continued on this conversation about having a, almost a nation state design for a cryptocurrency, uh, or at least a, a, a cryptocurrency stable design, stable coin design, we then get into the governance side of things. And that is messing with the protocol. And Sefi brings up the example, as you're going to hear from one of the Cosmos lead developers. And the idea with this is that basically we need to see more of a constitution or of founding principles for a lot of crypto networks. Because if these truly want to be some sort of decentralized solution or decentralized network, you need to have some kind of principles people get behind. And he draws upon the United States Constitution, and I think he mentions the Bill of Rights in this portion as well. But basically the idea is here are our founding principles, and we might veer away in, in certain aspects, but the inspiration is always there. There's always still that main original design. And he thinks with too many cryptocurrencies, it's innovate and create something kind of new for the token, and then something breaks, and then they need to fix it. So they have to go hard fork the token or change the token. And he's not a huge proponent of that um, with constantly changing the token, actually. But he does believe that hard forks are, in many ways, the solution to figuring out, you know, how do we actually carry on you know if you hard fork something so let's just take ethereum and ethereum classic for example or bitcoin and bitcoin satoshi vision which is the way better example so i'm going to go with that one um when bitcoin was hard forked into bitcoin bitcoin sv and all the other uh bitcoin block size changed modifications whatever the hard forks basically right we still see at the end of the day which one is the true bitcoin um people in the free market have decided to stay with the original bitcoin protocol 
that's what people have decided on. That's what people have rallied around. And those founding principles have never been challenged like they haven't since the lock size wars. And they will likely never be challenged again because of the steadfast adherence, unless there's some sort of major existential threat to the protocol. You know, speaking with like Jay Kwan the last few weeks, who's uh, one of the uh, founders of Cosmos, you know, he's kind of wrote the original white paper and everything. Um, he, his impression is, is that like, you should not make changes to the primary uh, token of your ecosystem and that any serious change really deserves a hard fork. I mean, same as say, for example, what happened with Bitcoin, like you'd mentioned. Um, why? Because then, then people have a choice basically, right? They can, they can go and use, I don't know, Bitcoin SV or whatever other, you know, random thing shows up, right? And if they want to use that and they believe that that's the future, well, then they can, they can buy that and, you know, use it as at will. And I think, uh, you know, at first, if you're like an early Bitcoin and when you're first getting into Bitcoin, right, the existence of these forks, you know, on one hand, there's obviously the, the shenanigans and the politics behind it and all the drama. But if you exclude all of that nonsense, right, if you just go back to the, the core issue, you, you can vote with your money in terms of which chain you use, right? Like it's, a, it's the purest form of governance in a way. And if people don't use one of those products, whether it's Bitcoin Cash or whatever, then, you know, it just eventually will die. And yes, it will make it slower for, you know, the OG token Bitcoin to like grow in value because obviously attention and market cap is going to these other things. But I think that's just how sort of like biological systems work. For example, it's just a survival of the fittest thing. And the more possible players out there, the more variety there is, the more possibilities there are to test what should and shouldn't like succeed. Um, see what the public actually wants over a long period of time and go from there. Like, you know, of course, like Monero and some of the, you know, I think it's uh, Zcash, et cetera, have more of a privacy angle. Um, and, you know, there is clearly a role for those things as well. And even there, you have more than one, um, you know, option. And some people prefer a Zcash, some people f prefer Monero or whatever, and that's fine. And I think, um, you know, Jay's point um, for the Cosmos was that, you know, even for the latest Atom um, update to Atom 2.0, which has a lot of different things and features and treasury changes and there's a lot going on there and if you look at the community governance discussion in telegram it's just a shit show of uh like every possible opinion you could possibly imagine right so at the end of the day the only thing that matters is what gets proposed what gets voted on what wins what's implementable but um his take was like you really shouldn't try to do this with a primary chain you should just fork it create like the atom 2.0 chain and if it turns out that it's successful and more successful, the original one, then the original one didn't deserve to exist as much. Um, but the existing bag holders, right, of the previous chain are going to be really, really outspoken. Same as Bitcoin. Bitcoiners went crazy against the BSV folks, the Bitcoin Cash folks. Remember that? Like, so, so clearly, like, that um, is always a contentious thing. But maybe it's the right process, even though it takes years to go through and maybe a lot of time gets wasted in deciding which was in fact the right way to do something. Um, but maybe that's the more anti-fragile approach than to, uh, let's say, change the original Bitcoin to one of these other, um, you, know, for, you know, instead of forking it, uh, actually like converting BTC to something else, for example. Maybe that's just the wrong choice. I don't know. So this is like, I think... Uh,
an area where once you stop being a, we're looking at it from a more mature perspective. And I think I see some of what Jaquan is saying when he's like suggesting not going so crazy with the original um, thing. Like, Cause I think the way, um, and, and, uh, and then Sunny uh, Agarwal of Osmosis comes on in this discussion and he says, well, you know, the things like, um, uh, you know, on the other hand, he's, he's looking at the mesh security model, right? Where essentially chains um, have each other's security. And now you have not only a multi-chain world, but like a mesh network world, um, uh, which is another whole system, which could be interesting. Um, but, uh, and then like the counter argument to that would be if you have a multi-chain world with lots of different crypto and everyone just uses a little bit of everything, then you don't have the memetic effect anymore, right? It's the shillability, in other words. So if you look at traditional businesses in the traditional world, they spend a lot of money in advertising, right? Whether it's your local gym or a local restaurant or whatever it is, some fraction of the budget gets swallowed up in advertising, especially um, in, in certain uh, areas like fashion or um, whatever, and you lose the mimetic effect essentially of having a cohesive brand for crypto, which then means that the you have to advertise. Like, how else are you going to get it to grow? And that's a that's a problem I think every small project in crypto faces now, right? Like, there's a limited mimetic effect to Gravidal, for example, right? At some level, if you're doing podcasts, why to sort of help with engagement, help people see what you guys are doing, help to help show what you may, maybe you guys are bringing to the community in terms of activity, right? Um, so, but that's all your time, whether you are paid or not is neither here nor there. You're spending your time doing this. And um, I think the, the cost of advertising um, becomes higher and higher, the less virality there is in any particular system or whatever that word is that defines, you know, that spontaneous advertising process that happens with, say, for example, like Bitcoin now, right? Like you have tons of Bitcoiners shilling Bitcoin and they hold conferences and whatever. And it's not like there's the Satoshi Nakamoto uh, like fund or something that funds these Bitcoin conferences. Someone has to fund these things. Um, Satoshi's not here like shilling his shit, right? <laughs> this is not a thing. So, but we see that um, like, how do you get that price meme effect? How do you, um, take advantage of that so that you are getting sort of like this web three viral exposure um, without, you know, over diluting um, into millions of hard forks. Um, it, it's a really tricky thing. I don't, I'm not sure I know the answer to it or if there's even, even is an answer. Like I, I as when I look at biological systems, right, you have so many examples in biological systems of how these things work take for example a beehive i would say that's a fairly like centralized structure with like a queen bee and a bunch of workers and all this stuff they make honey or whatever so it's not that hard to kill off a beehive technically with a little bit of poison or something right but the way that bees might survive is there's millions of hives all over the country or all over the world and therefore the decentralization is through the sheer numbers not necessarily because individually they're not centralized, right? So like this idea is where, um, you know, is, so, so is there, has life, like the, the idea to think about is, has life figured out a way to make things either super decentralized, like tardigrades or some other small organism or bacteria or viruses that are super, super decentralized um, 
and their evolution is highly decentralized or, you know, all the way to human beings, which are super, super centralized, relatively speaking. Um, life literally finds a niche in every single spectrum of central versus decentralization. And I think each project, each blockchain needs to figure out like what benefits is it going to get through centralized mechanisms or what benefits is going to get through decentralized mechanisms, sort of sort all that out. And I think the crypto community is going to come to the realization that like centralization is not always bad and decentralization is not always good, right? Like we see this with DAOs and such, right? A bunch of decentralized people just all just voting for whatever the hell they want. Like everyone has like you know, 10 people in that with 10 different opinions, you get nothing done, right? So there's that set of problems. Um, so I think that's kind of Jay's concept is like, okay, a group of people come together, they create a blockchain. Um, there are certain rules. Those rules are largely immutable. Even through governance, there shouldn't be easy to change. And they like the user should, and the builder, the people building dApps on that blockchain should have a user experience or a, or a development experience that they can believe is going to be credibly neutral and immutable for years and years and years so you can build upon them, right? It's like, imagine if you're buying a car and the government decides to change the width of the road every so often, like, right? Like now your, your Ford F-150 or whatever the hell it is, it no longer fits on the road because they decided to modify the the rails, right? These are the kinds of problems that we're seeing in like DeFi chains all over the place. I think you've probably seen this, you know, and, and so where, where you break composability, you break program, like you break, you make deployment time much longer and more expensive for teams because you keep making changes that don't make sense because everyone's sort of like governing their way into some new thing all the time. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting process. I think the cool thing about Cosmos, though, that's exciting is because we can have hundreds of chains, um, there is, and you can also have daughter chains, by the way, like the consumer chain concept, which is coming, which is interchain security. You won't need to necessarily change the primary chain that often anymore because if you keep messing with it, you're not going to be able to differentiate yourself from the others. And I think builders are going to go where they can find the most stable blockchain that isn't being messed with every five minutes, right? If you think about it, right? So I think we're evolving. I think what's happening is, is like the best possible practice in terms of building a blockchain, the, the most common governance problems, um, you know, are going to be sort of solved to the extent that you won't have that much difference between chains anymore. And if there are differences, they're gonna be very stark and you're gonna be building on that chain for a very specific reason. And you're not gonna want that chain to change just because like, you know, some random vote decides to change it. <laughs> like, so immutability, I think is uh, like, it's, it's just an important feature that uh, is like uh, not particularly, um, I don't think the general public uh, really thinks about these kinds of things very much. And uh, like, and, and that leads to sort of like investment choices and stuff like that too. Um, that are not considering these possibilities of breaking chains and causing problems. So we continue on our conversation about governance, and we also speak a bit about the original Terra chain. The idea here of 
what it means to have the memification. I asked, I talked about Doquan a bit. I also bring up the point that in many ways, the original Terra network was run like a traditional tech company. And that was you had this almost all powerful CEO and someone like Doquan. And while, yes, there were censorship resistant aspects of something like UST, the stable coin itself, um, there really was not all that much decentralization at certain points at the root of it. I mean, TFL was very omnipresent. Uh, Do Kwan had incredible amounts of say in the protocol design. And I also say, you know what, that's fine. Um, and I think in many ways, you know, each network will be able to choose and decide. But we talk about this model a bit, and we think that there's a, an applicable way that you can put this into something that's more familiar to a DAO and how you can actually put this out on a roadmap. Uh, I think Sefi also talks about in this portion uh, the, the security risks of having someone fully doxed. And we saw this with the, the demise of the original Terra chain with how Do Kwan was basically being threatened. People were coming to his door. People were trying to find him. Um, and that's one of the big dangers, I think, of some of these protocols. That is, if you do have a fully doxed owner, um, it can be a little scary scary on their sense because in many ways they're acting almost as if they're a public official uh they're almost like the president or senator or representative of this protocol um but this protocol isn't actually a country there's no legal laws there's no secret service protecting them uh and and as a result they're not only a major source of centralization uh but also security risk so i'm just gonna stop talking again i like to ramble here but i, I once again i was really excited by this conversation so i hope you enjoy this portion lead um, sort of volunteer developers for the blockchain sort of came on. And the, 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 so this guy basically kept saying, well, I'm, I'm a volunteer, I'm a volunteer, I'm a volunteer. And he gets millions of DMs asking him to like, why does the number go up? Or like, uh, I had some problem with my MetaMask wallet or, or trust wallet or something. Can you fix this for me? In other words, he's getting bombarded with nonsense. Um, he's having to repeat over and over again that he is in fact a volunteer. He doesn't get paid for this. And he has to say it again and again, because obviously no one's going to read every tweet. No one knows, like, you know, no one knows anything about you. They just assume, oh, he, people expect centralization, right? People behave as if your blockchain's run by a central agency or, or, or company or something like that. And all of their requests, there's going to be customer service in the background to fix their crap. And the funny thing is, after all of this, he says, okay, I've been, I've said over and over again, I'm a volunteer. And um, one of the members, the community member says, well, wait, um, you said that you would stop, um, like you would stop developing if the chain decides to go a certain route. And he's like, yeah, if it doesn't fit my ethos, like what, you know, it's not like whatever the community votes for, I'm gonna automatically build. You can find someone else to build it if you like do something about the tokenomics that I don't agree with, right? Something like that. And they turned it around and said, or one of the members turned around and said, Okay, so you're holding the blockchain hostage. You're not going to continue to develop on this thing. You're going to drop it if, um, and you're the guy that knows what he's doing, um, if things don't go your way. So how can you be both decentralized and for the community and all the, you know. So in other words, he has to get rid of his individual liberty in order to, like, exert the will of the mob or the so-called community. Like, <laughs> so it's not only do votes not, like, voting is interesting on blockchains, but Who's going to implement those votes? And what if the person who's implementing them so far or the team or whatever, like maybe the value system doesn't align or something. Maybe there's some reason why. Because the mob is oftentimes wrong in terms of like what is the right technical choice or they're oftentimes wrong. 
well, the technical choice, the mom's almost always wrong. That's a different issue. Only a few developers are very good at what they're doing, like can prevent a lot of crises. But from a non-technical perspective, even like financial choices and stuff like that, right? The, the reality is that even people who are really in this make lots of mistakes. The general public, like, would you have the general public run Apple Corporation or Microsoft? Hell no, right? Like, there's just no conceivable, rational reason why that would turn out well. Like, there's just no reason. <laughs> so it's funny how this guy was being attacked for volunteering. And if for any reason he stopped working, it was somehow like um, somehow he was holding the chain hostage or something like that. It's just so like, how can this guy win? Right. There's no way for him to win. If he's a volunteer, literally giving away his time for free, he has one set of problems. If he gets paid. Right. Imagine he's not even getting paid yet. And he's taking this much flack. Imagine when he's getting paid and people are harassing him for not accomplishing X, Y, and Z on exact time frames or whatever. Um, or if a mistake happens and, you know, a, a, some kind of financial crisis were to emerge and all that, right? So it's like the same Do Kwan story you just told. Like, arguably, Do Kwan should have been um, anonymous the entire time, right? Arguably, that's true. Like, you shouldn't even, in decentralized finance, I have this saying, like, you have decentralized culpability. And, <laughs> and actually... Uh, centralized figures like Doe or, or for that matter, any founders, right, are basically an attack surface waiting to be exploited, right? So this is the problem. I'm not suggesting anyone do this, by the way. I'm just saying it's a, it's a known problem where normally, like if you run a company, um, like if you're a, I don't know, CEO of Apple or something, you probably have like bodyguards and security and all sorts of shit going on. Uh, they're not going to let that person like you know, <laughs> be destroyed by the whims of random people. It's just not going to be, uh, it's almost like how a president has a uh, lot of security because that's an attack vector that um, is a concern. So yeah, the, the entire decentralized finance world, um, especially the so-called communities are like not behaving uh, in any kind of decentralized manner. <laughs> like it's this, the, the system is not decentralized at all. I, I think it's a fantasy. Like, I think most people actually what they want is they want a centralized system that's utopian, that's better than what they have in the real world. So as I was just mentioning with the tail end of that conversation, um, we have to now look at what it means to build a sustainable governance model for massive networks. And as Sefi mentions, it can get really messy when you have thousands of voices in a room and they're all shouting at each other and we really don't have much of a way to organize them. And that's kind of how representative government came about. It was to be able to give people outlets for their ideas without having to always be active in voting on certain things, right? So if you have a representative and you have a complaint about some policy or something, you can go to that representative in theory and then they can then enact the change for you rather than everyone has to then shout in a room and everyone raises their hand and hopes that they get the right outcome. Um, it, it helps it helps just clean the messiness, I guess, of some of the, the governance issues. And when you look at these large, large chains and you have all these voices coming at you or you look at some of these DAOs, which have not quite yet structured as much as they have been, or they've messed up their structuring a little bit. But basically, we're starting to see the emulation of a lot of representative governance. Um, and I think Sefi really hits on this point well here. We also talk about the, anonym the anonymity aspect of this. So 
how the dangers of being an official that is forward facing and fully doxed, um, even if they are doxed on some other project, you know, once once a project becomes large enough, your entire being is at risk because you are also uh, in control of likely a large amount of capital. So what what is the solution here? We don't really know. And there's also just the classic the classic uh, case example of things such as bribery and how we see in governments around the world. I mean, this is something that has not been figured out. Um, there's always going to be you know, people trying to convince others to do certain things for them. Uh, and as crypto now moves from this very flat hierarchy for DAOs, and you know, once again, I defend this. I say there are some contexts where I think flat hierarchies make sense for DAOs. I think DAOs are a very contextual concept and something that needs to be explored as a case-by-case basis. And it depends what you're trying to achieve and what you're trying to build. But if you're trying to build a representative republic or democracy or have democratic institutions in here as well, um, you need to make sure that there, there, there's a sense of accountability. Uh, and in the case of things such as bribes, I don't know if we really quite have that. I mean, the question is, how do you enforce it to know that the people who are running DAOs have the greatest intentions? So I'm going to hand it off to Sefi from here and we'll go to the next section. Yeah, what you're basically defining is an executive branch with institutions, a legislative branch, and ultimately judicial branch to make sure that the everything. <laughs> so like, like this has already been sort of sorted out for hundreds of years, which is funny. Um, and for that matter, the Bill of Rights, right? Like in general, uh, the U.S. Bill of Rights specifically is pretty good, like for the most part. Uh, you know, it's there's a lot of paradoxes there in terms of enforcement and everything else. But for the most part, it's pretty good. And it's about as good as it's liable to get, actually. Um, and then you see all of the difficulty in running those institutions and doing the enforcement. Right. Because you have all those problems as well. Um, yeah, it, it, like, uh, what is where's the on chain enforcement if something goes wrong? Right. There isn't such a thing. So you have to bake that into your um, like your your risk uh, in terms of um, how many things do you want to change due to governance or otherwise. So, yeah, I, I think the DAO, um, like some of the stuff that um, DAO tooling uh, groups are doing to help things like solve to help s solve problems like, you know, paying salaries, for example, to teams or um things like voting in a council so that a, a council of like maybe five to ten members that the community believes is sufficiently credible enough almost like a city council um would do to overlook operations to some extent or the other yeah they won't be perfect they're going to be human but maybe it's better than nothing and it's um it, it allows a small group of people who are maybe paid for this task to do a specific job that the community at large can't do on their own, um, you know, and having been on one of these councils recently, I would say like, it's a mixture of like a tech person, uh, uh, myself who understands some business principles, um, some science principles. There's uh, another member that's really great at organization, another member that's really good at sort of like talking to different teams to make sure that, um, you know, like deliverables are actually happening, right? It's so the minute you have money to allocate, you can figure out a million ways to waste money without good allocation, confirming that contractors have done their job, et cetera, right? So even giving away money is really hard and doing so without a tremendous amount of waste is really hard. And um, I think a certain amount of waste is sort of like part of that process. 
like even now we joke around we're like okay look we have a committee of five people we're dispersing these funds if something goes wrong don't look at fucking me because i didn't i don't get paid for this and um i will attempt not to be bribed or something else to kind of like divert the the funds in places that shouldn't you know they shouldn't go but are we going to make perfect decisions each time in terms of who we allocate these funds to? Is it possible that some of these groups will not deliver um, even though we're paying them to deliver, right? These kinds of issues. I think um, even councils, it's like you, you ask yourself, why would you volunteer for this goddamn thing? <laughs> like I have to do all this work. And the only thing that's going to happen is when something goes wrong, they're going to blame you. They're not, there's not any you know, team of people that's going to send you a Hallmark card when everything goes well. Right. Like literally no one will care if it goes perfectly. Right. It's so it's a it's a it's like an unsung hero type of thing, like almost like serving in, you know, uh, branches of the military or something like that, where you, your your work may never go noticed. Right. It's a pure service. And um, and and technically you're in harm's way in some ways, uh, especially when it comes to reputation. Right. Like, so it's it's a fascinating problem. And I, I don't know that it gets any better if I get paid for it, right? Like, it, it's not, like, is there any, and not only that, but is there any guarantee that one of us wouldn't take, say, for example, a bribe? I'm not saying that I did. I'm just saying, like, is there any way for me to credibly prove that no one has, like, you know, shuffled me money on the side to say yes to some project or otherwise, right? You see the problem? So you can see why graft would happen in, in government. You can see why graft would happen in you know, corporations, it's just, there's too many surfaces and nobody, like who's going to audit the auditor kind of problem, right? Like it's just an endless circle of nonsense and you just hope for the best. I think it's easier, the smaller the organization, right? When you talk about, let's say the cosmos blockchain at large, right? With tons and tons of different incentives and people that have reasons why they want, you know, the project to go a certain direction, aligning incentives becomes harder and harder, I think. For the final portion of this interview, I kind of put, ended on a light note, and we speak a little bit about Luna Classic. So as many of you know, Sefi has been involved with the Luna Classic community. Uh, I, I don't know what you'd call them. There's the Lunk Dao group. There's just there's a lot of interesting figures that have come out of what <laughs> what has been the, the forking or the, or the new chain, I should say, of Terra and Terra Classic. Um, and so we just speak about the story there. We speak about why Sefi got involved, what people were doing at the time, some of the new figures that he's seen pop up as a result of uh, a lot of enthusiasm forming around the Terra, Terra Classic chain. And so we just go ahead and I ask him to hear his story and some of his opinions on it. So, But it will be probably one of the few times we talk about Luna Classic on the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this segment. So here's here's how this played out. So when Luna Classic, just for people's context, emerged, it, it was the old um, tokenomics of Luna when it crashed. So what happened was as Luna hyperinflated, the token count of Luna just skyrocketed exponentially to you know trillions of, of, of Luna coins from what was previously I think like a, a sub-trillion market you know, like a number of coins, it just just ballooned out of proportion. And that was because of this sort of like Luna UST mechanism when Luna, the UST DPEG happened. So Luna Classic is the old chain. The new chain is uh, Terra version two, which is a completely fresh chain. Um, it uh, actually has a smaller market cap than Luna Classic right now, interestingly. And what happened was, is that um, like a bunch of people, um, 
uh, who saw the like bottoming out of price of Luna Classic said to themselves, hey, wait a minute, we have like max sell pressure here. We can, you know, presume that this is about as low as this thing is going to go. And a bunch of people just aped into the thing, quite frankly, like they just saw the these kind of the price bottoming out. A bunch of people bought it. They figured like they have an asymmetric bet here. They could just bet on this chain and, um, you know, maybe it'll 10x or 100x from when they bought it, which I think it already has from the bottom. Right. So if, if someone had picked at the very bottom, they could probably have like recouped most of their uh, uh, losses from from Terra. They just simply threw a little bit. Now, I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just saying, like, did I do that? No, not really. I just wasn't convinced. I wasn't fully convinced at the time that the validator network would continue to get paid and that that would actually survive. So I didn't really like mess with the thing. Any Luna that I had on Luna Classic basically was worth pennies or something at the, by the time that was all done. So there's not a reason for me to um, like uh, worry about this thing. So I wasn't watching this that carefully. Now, the LunkDAO, which is like a small, like, uh, a group of people that um, you know, started a validator and um, just basically just like with their personal Twitter accounts, just started talking about uh, Luna Classic and making a funny meme out of it. So Bruce or like Asparagoid, the Twitter account, um, Bruce is his current incarnation. He has a bunch of funny characters he does. Yeah, he, he, uh, he kind of like, you know, was just making fun of the chain and doing all sorts of like shenanigans and really just creating a lot of like entertainment and fun around it. And um, initially people are calling him an idiot for actually even talking about this chain. Right. And then after it hundred X or thousand X or whatever it is, they're like, whoops, okay, fine. Uh, and then a bunch of people showed up out of nowhere. Like as the price goes up, remember the price meme effect I told you about earlier, um, as price goes up, it starts showing green on every single, um, like it shows up green on uh, coin market cap. It's going to show is most traded on every platform like KuCoin or Binance, right? Because if it's the market cap is that small and the number of wallets that, ha that have like um, that are already pre-existing and the number of exchanges that have Luna Classic are really high, right? Think about it as that, like the ultimate ultra micro cap shit coin, but it's on every exchange and there's wallets everywhere for it. Right. It has nowhere to go but up. It just it's like that's what and that's exactly what happened. And um, uh, Asparagoid did a great job predicting this. He certainly predicted it more than he had more like faith in it than I did. Um, and uh, so he kind of brought that about. And then later, a bunch of people started shilling it on, I don't know, like Wall Street bets and God knows who and just went crazy. The whole Internet just like exploded. Um, you know, I threw a few tweets out there and a few other people. Next thing you know, the thing explodes. Like none of us really strongly implied it was going to, you know, go crazy or anything. It just it just did. So a bunch of newbies came in. Right. Like so what that is now is a bunch of people who that I've actually talked to on Twitter spaces and elsewhere who sound like they have like no idea about any other crypto. A lot of people, they just showed up and they bought this thing for whatever reasons. And now they're bag holders in this thing and they want it to go up. They want it to succeed. Now, the downside is like the tokenomics are a mess. Right. So there's like these this like. Binance um, chain, like meme coin burn mechanism and all sorts of like shenanigans to try to make it like make it memeable in a sense. And I think the general crypto community doesn't understand the difference between like a feature that's a, a meme effect, like a burn mechanism and a burn mechanism that's actually tied to an actual function. Right. Like, for example, a stock, a stock buyback would be a great example. 
and they don't know the difference. And like, so there's a group of people that want this burn thing and, Oh, look, the burn thing, the burn thing. So like, you know, a two months went by where everyone was like, you know, asking by CZ of Binance to like implement this thing and go crazy. So, so first they got this burn tax implemented. It's like, I think it's like 1.2% or something, which is fairly high for every transaction you lose 1.2%. So it's not really great for like, um, like, DEXs, right? It's not great for trading activity. It's not great for like lots of NFT transactions. It's fine for the occasional buy and hold user, but it's not particularly um, great for volume. Um, and, uh, and most of the Binance shitcoins that are on BSC um, that uh, have had burn mechanisms, I don't know, SafeMoon, a bunch of others, have like by and large gone to zero, right? Like for the most part, like <laughs> for, for all intents and purposes. And um, so this is kind of the status of that community right now. They're, they're, I think, not sure what to do. And like the serious people, right? The developers and whatnot, I think want to move to a more serious, um, like sustainable standard to try to kind of put this chain back together. But um, yeah, exactly which meme effect or which like, ethos to rally around nobody's understanding what to do and my take on the situation is wait a minute why would you buy this particular coin versus any other cosmos chain that doesn't have any of this baggage right like the only reason is this presumption that you have this rabid newbie community who's like shiba inu dogecoin style meme coiners who are willing to throw silly money at something without doing any sort of research right like that's that's the that's the, the 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 value proposition for this thing that's kind of how i see it and like am, am i fudding it no i think it is what it is it's just like but um and it's fine people can get it for this reason by the way it's 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 you know every, it's up to people's own like um you know it's a free market yeah I, i'm perfectly i'm not one of these people that like you know, oh, gonna like care that much about what you do or don't buy. I'm fine with people do whatever they want. But at the same time, is it the thing that I'm going crazy and buying? Not really. I have like probably what amounts to like maybe a few dollars worth or something like that. Like, you know, so any help I'm providing to this community, like you asked, like, why am I hanging out with these people? Why am I like, because I, I think uh, any help I'm providing on trying to like connect people and, and, and bring that system back together is maybe um, out of, you know, maybe a little bit of compassion. You know, maybe some things can be fixed. You have developers and you have a huge pool of money. So anywhere there's money, things can be fixed, right? Um, so I, I was kind of just uh, aiding a little bit and maybe providing some, like, advice from someone who's been around a bit. And uh, I don't know, try to inject some rationality into that space. Have I had much success in that? I don't know. Like, I don't really know. But at the same time, remember, these are all people that came in. A lot of people came in fresh to crypto. These are not people who've been around. And you have conversations with them. You realize, wait, your, your knowledge about this space is nominal. Like, this is the first thing they bought. Yeah, for whatever reason. Like, it went totally viral all over the world. Seriously, like people in Turkey and Pakistan and India, whatever, were buying crazy amounts and telling their friends and all this other bullshit, right? So it's amazing how viral it became. And... Um, you know, at the same time, these are all people that like uh, you don't want to necessarily have them leave the cosmos. So as an advocate for cosmos based blockchains, I'm perfectly fine with people this being sort of their gateway, um, you know, the gateway into the cosmos for them. 
like that's kind of how I think about it. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot of great projects in Cosmos that they're going to be exposed to by hanging around. The, the Terra 2 people were all, or, or now which is Terra 2, right, is a lot of people that were fairly DeFi hardcore, right? Like these were, these were like Terra ideologues and people who really wanted the technical merits to work, right? Like we had many, many conversations over the last year before the crash. And it was really a lot of people who really wanted genuine knowledge, right? So these were not necessarily absolute um, like price chasers or whatever, right? So, so, so the two different um, uh, communities, at least in Twitter spaces, the thing is like, think about it though, like the number of people on Twitter is a tiny fraction of all the people that buy these things. It's interesting how you, you might think, well, the, the, the Twitter spaces crowd um, or like any specific discord group or something like that represents the totality of anything. It really doesn't. Um, but yeah, the ethos and feel of spaces um, between the two groups was dramatically different because on the, 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 the spaces regarding like the original Terra, you had tons of like serious developers coming on, right? People from Delphi Digital, from, um, I don't know, like GT Capital and a variety of other groups. And they would hop on and have really, really technically deep conversation. Whereas right now on the Classic, the conversation's fairly superficial still. And um, <laughs> mostly figuring out how to like fix the tokenomics of a system um, and less on sort of like what the future intent is. Um, I, I haven't seen yet a specific vision delineated, um, whatever that might be for either chain, really. But like, but at least uh, I don't know. It, it's a very fascinating process. I think um, living through it and watching it uh, has been uh, very, very educational. Like it, no matter how you look at this, right? It's like it's a massive educational experience, um, and I, I think I've learned a lot that can then be utilized to, um, I don't know, just deal with people, but also deal with like attack vectors and problems that might happen on future Cosmos chains. So I think it's important to keep those people around that got wrecked, like so that they can kind of be the, the whatever the, 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 I don't know, Paul Revere's or whatever of the next chains that show up, right? <laughs> If you could take a second and go follow Sefi over on his Twitter, it is over at Sefi1. You can find him with the at sign C-E-P-H-I-I and then the number one. Uh, someone had apparently taken the the rare, but <laughs> like the name, so I had to have the little number one at the end of it. But yeah, that's uh, where they can find me. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And a huge shout out not only to Sefi, but also our editor for taking part and helping make this episode come out to be as best as possible despite the technical issues that happened along the way i've recorded probably over 80 90 100 interviews at this point in my uh, podcasting life and i can say that this is the first time i have ever messed up my recording situation it's a pretty good track record one percent i know some people it happens to them more often they'd like to admit so it's one of those things that i just have to face around also make sure to like follow and subscribe to the gravidal podcast your support is always appreciated i know there's going to be a lot of work that went into this episode after the fact and we'd really appreciate that you help show that support there and with all that being said thank you again for tuning in and we'll see you soon